the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. North Dakota, South Dakota, or you. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. Blessed are the ones mourning, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the ones having been persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. The Beatitudes. We cannot separate the Beatitudes from the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, the Beatitudes are the outline of everything he's going to say to us. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Pastor Ray from the National Prayer Chapel. I want to open some things for you today that may startle you, but I think you'll find them helpful if you can hear. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that you would open our hearts, <clears throat> that you would open our minds, that you would open our spirits, that we could comprehend, that we could apprehend, that we could know you, Jesus, and be filled with your glory. I pray in your name. Amen. We have to read and understand the Beatitudes, the be happy attitudes, in the context in which they're placed in the Sermon on the Mount. They are the very beginning of the message. They are the introduction to the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's very simple to pick one or two or all and give them our own humanistic interpretation. That is not going to be helpful in this journey toward the celestial city. I want to show you what I mean. When he's finished outlining the Beatitudes in Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 3 through 12, he immediately turns to another subject. And it is a subject of warning. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt may become tasteless, by what will it be made salty? 
It is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So Jesus outlines the attitudes. And then he says, look, if you don't walk through these and understand them, you will be like salt that has become tasteless. In that day, salt was not of the same quality as it is today. And it would lose its saltiness because it had impurities mixed into it. And if those impurities mixed into it caused it to lose its saltiness, it wasn't good for anything to to be thrown out. And people would walk on it. He's saying, you are the salt of the earth. You need bite. Salt has a bite to it. Oh, it flavors, but it has a bite. If you lose the bite, and what is the bite? Well, let's continue. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city built on a mountain cannot be concealed, nor do they light a lamp and put it under the grain bucket but upon a lampstand, and it gives light to all the ones in the house. You see, he's speaking about the same issue. So you must let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and may glorify your Father in the heavens. In other words, you have to be a transformed person. If you're like the world, you have lost your saltiness. There's no bite. There's no light in the world if you're like the world. Do you light a lamp and put it under a grain bucket? No. You put it on a lampstand so that it lights up the whole place. If there's no difference between you and the world, you have lost your saltiness. Jesus is warning right at the beginning. Look. Now continue verse 17. This is startling. Listen. Do not begin to think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until the heaven and the earth may pass away, one iota or one stroke may by no means pass away from the law until all things have come to pass. Consequently, if any person may break one of these least commandments and may teach men to do so, he will be called least by the kingdom of heaven. But whoever may do and may teach them, this man will be called great by the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness may exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you might you may by no means enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Now he's saying something very startling here. The common theme of the modern church is that God loves you unconditionally, that you're going to always be a sinner. In other words, you're always going to be without salt. You'll always have no real light to put on the lampstand because you have no real righteousness. 
Look, Jesus came to save us from our sins, but he also came, according to 1 John, to destroy the works of the devil. Where are the works of the devil most manifest? In the human life, in the wickedness of the human heart. So as we look at these Beatitudes, we need to understand they, if attained, will bring a saltiness to our life. And we will not be antinomian. We will not cast the law aside. Some of you believe. And I'm shaking my head in unbelief. I'm, I'm, I'm incredulous. Some of you have been taught by wicked men, even though some honest men who are just deceived, and women, that you can never leave your sin. Well, if you can never leave your sin, you can never be saved. Because to be saved is to be saved from wickedness, from sin. Jesus does not soften the standard of righteousness. He increases it. Now, it's clear, and I shared this yesterday. If you have not listened, please go back and listen to yesterday's message. It's very clear that the law cannot bring righteousness. It instead brings condemnation. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans, the eighth chapter. So there is a standard of righteousness that comes from God from a source outside of the law, and that is by the faith of Jesus Christ. We are made righteous by the faith of Jesus Christ as we place our trust in his atoning blood. There is a total transformation that happens in our lives. So if we're going to understand the Beatitudes, we have to understand that they will result in making us very, very salty. They will cause us to be brilliant with light. They will cause us to be filled with the glory of God. And we're going to talk about what that will look like. But let's just quickly review the very beginning place for salvation, the entryway into the kingdom of God is to begin to have great conviction regarding the wickedness of my human heart. That's what I read for you out of John Bunyan. As Christian begins to read the word and conviction begins to come upon him, he recognizes that if there is not a dramatic change in his life, he is going to go up in flames, his city is going to go up in flames, and his family will be destroyed as well. If you don't understand that, you have not yet begun with the first beatitude. That is the beginning place where Jesus starts the gospel message. The utter wickedness of the human heart, the grinding poverty of the human heart. And I'm very concerned today because we live in a hookup culture. 
God gave us sexuality. Now, what are we going to do with that sexuality? Are we going to allow it to be perverted? Do you understand that when people get together sexually, they are dealing with the most sacred part of a man or a woman's heart. They are dealing with the very essence of what it means to be human. And if we live a life of sexual uncleanness, as one serial fornicator said to me, you know, I'm, I wake up in the morning, Pastor, and I have a different woman in bed every week or every day. I don't know. I don't know what her name is. I have to really think to to remember what her name is. I picked her up somewhere, and and we had sex, and we slept together. And his heart had grown very cynical and very hard and very bitter. That's what happens when we violate the most precious thing that God has brought into our lives, sexuality. Now, we can go the other direction, and we can say, sexuality is wrong. I'm just going to shut down my sexuality, my, my most intimate desire and in my heart for union with another person. I'm going to just shut it down. Then we have to deal with masturbation. We have to deal with, with uncleanness. Unless we shut everything down. And then we have to begin to ask the question, what do I do with the most intimate part of my soul? How do I deal with this? What does it mean to be human? It certainly does not mean to use another person for my own lust. It certainly does not mean to comfort myself with masturbation or some other form of sexual pleasure. No. Sexuality for God means two human beings who are eligible to be together come and form one body, one spirit, and they produce children. As one man said, if you don't have children, what is your life for? That's one of the major accomplishments of life is to have children and then to raise them in such a manner that they will serve Jesus and then to have that family unit of fellowship and love and safety. That's the basic building block of the human society. And it all centers around our sexuality. Is it any wonder the devil has gone after sexuality in such a rabid way to convince us that we should sin against Almighty God? and against our own bodies. Well, when we come 
to blessed are the poor in spirit, it involves everything that's in our life. The loneliness, the fear, the discouragement, the lack of success. And finally, some people deal with this by just saying, I'm checking out, I'm committing suicide, I'm finished here, I'm done. I believe that's the cowardly way out, and it is the way of darkness, and it says that Satan has finally won, and you have walked on his ground so long, you finally say to him, okay, I'll join you in hell. There's another way. Take that grinding poverty of spirit and to begin to honestly admit our condition. To have the courage to look honestly at my life. And frankly, if you look honestly at your life and you've not been through this process that Jesus describes, you will be brokenhearted and you will weep. And he's saying that if you begin this work here, you will attain unto the kingdom of heaven. Repentance is the beginning of the journey toward heaven. Then you will mourn over your condition. You will weep. And he says, blessed are the ones mourning. They will be comforted. They'll be comforted by the Holy Spirit, but they'll also be comforted by other Christians who will love and cherish and walk with regardless of what the sin of the past life has been. One sin is no worse than any other sin. The sin of lying, stealing, cheating, anger, bitterness, dissensions, homosexuality, fornication, indecency, carousing, they're all sin. And they're sin we will mourn over. But out of that time of mourning will begin to flow a time of healing. And that healing will result in a humble heart before Almighty God and before my brothers and sisters. No longer judging and condemning and getting vengeance. No, humble of heart. Humble of heart. Then blessed are the ones hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for innocence. Lord, I've got to walk in innocence. And it is a battle. And then blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
all of these beatitudes, blessed are, blessed, 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 these are all about the journey toward healing, toward Christ-likeness. Now, in Mark, there's a story that I love. It's the story that took place in Capernaum by the lake, by the Sea of Galilee. He's at a house. People hear he's there. And they begin to come from all of the houses nearby. People are looking for Jesus because he's been healing their sickness. He's been talking to them about the God of heaven and the kingdom of heaven. He was preaching. He was teaching. And four men carried a paralytic young man and they wanted Jesus to heal him, but they could not get in the door. No one would give way to allow these four men to carry a paralytic on a stretcher. I mean, in a house, you can see that would require many people moving out of the way. They did not want to move out of the way. But these four men were very precious friends, and they were determined to get this man before Jesus. So they climbed the outside stairway up to the roof, a flat roof. They calculated where Jesus was seated as he was teaching and healing. And they began to take apart the roof to break through the mud, to break through whatever it was that comprise this roof. You can imagine debris began to fall on Jesus and the people, and probably some people were pretty upset by this. But they made an opening large enough to lower this man by ropes down to Jesus. Jesus seeing the faith of these four friends, said to this young man, this paralytic, Jesus said to him, child, or he used a term of endearment. He said, your sins have been forgiven. Now the word used in the Greek, it's two words. And they have a spatial meaning. Apo means from, away from. And the other word also is spatial, meaning to totally remove, to take away. This is vital for you to hear. This man is brought before Jesus. And he says, your sins have been removed far away from you. I have removed your sins. We usually say, I've forgiven. And forgiven is a 
a technical term. It means to write off your sins. This is much more than that. The sins are actually removed from him. The wickedness is removed from him. Now, there were some scribes, some Pharisees. They were sitting there. They were watching this. And they said to themselves, why does this man speak blasphemies? Who is able to remove sins except one, God? Well, they were right. Only God can remove sins. But Jesus is God. Now, Jesus knows in his spirit what they're saying to themselves in their minds. And he says to them, why are you reasoning these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins have been removed, or to say you must rise and you must take up your pallet and you must walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority upon the earth to remove sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, you must get up, take up your mat, your pallet, and go home. And immediately the man is raised up. He is totally healed and restored. He picks up the, the stretcher he's been laying on. And they make way for him as he goes out of the presence of everyone. He walks out the door. And everyone was glorifying God. Now, please don't focus on the amazing miracle of healing. That happened many times. But understand Jesus is making a very clear statement of reality. He has the power to remove your sins from your life. Now, there are two astonishing works of grace that God does for us. I want to identify those two works of grace from the scriptures. It's clearly described in the book of 1 John. 1 John, the first chapter, I'm going to begin with verse 9. If we may be in agreement with God, if we may be in agreement, with God, with respect to our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he may remove the sins with reference to us and may cleanse us from every conceivable unrighteousness. There are two works of grace. The condition for these two works of grace 
is that we come in the beatitude and recognize the grinding poverty of our spirit, our lostness, our cynicism, our anger. We recognize the spiritual condition of our soul and John the Apostle writes, if you recognize that bitterness of your heart, if you identify the wickedness of your spirit, and you come in agreement with God with respect to your sins, you say, yes, that is who I am. I'm cynical. I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm I'm." homosexual, I'm a drunkard, I'm a cheater, I'm a thief, I'm filled with pride, I'm filled with arrogance. Whatever the situation is, we come in full agreement with God about it. It says he is faithful and righteous so that he may remove the sins with reference to us and may cleanse us from every conceivable unrighteousness. So the first step is to meet the condition of recognizing our condition before a holy God. That's where Jesus starts in Beatitude number one. Secondly, We recognize our condition. And he removes the sin. Like he did from the paralytic. Now, we have corrupted the word justification. We've said that justification only means past sins are forgiven. And we've said sanctification then is the work of a lifetime. I disagree totally. That's not what the scriptures teach. That's what the modern church teaches. Jesus instead teaches that he will remove to take far from us our sin. That includes wiping away our past guilt, but it also includes making us righteous so that we no longer desire to walk in sin. If you read the writings of Jonathan Edwards, as I have, or you read the writings of John Wesley, George Whitfield, and many others, Charles Finney, they will all teach the same thing. They will teach very plainly that to be born from above, John 3, with Nicodemus, to be born from above means to be made into a new creature in Christ Jesus. But then there is yet a second work that must be accomplished in our hearts according to 1 John. And that is that he may cleanse us from every conceivable unrighteousness. 
In other words, we must be entirely sanctified. It's not the work of a lifetime. We are sanctified in the same way that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, in his blood. It's a free gift. But in Wesley's experience and in other great men of the past and women of the past, there are two works of grace. The first is to be born from above and to be given the power to no longer walk in sin. The second work of grace is to be absolutely, totally, completely cleansed of the old man, of the carnal nature, to have it removed from our lives, from our hearts. And this happened, and we'll get into this probably tomorrow, this happened at Pentecost for the disciples with the infilling of the Holy Spirit. For he came to teach them, to comfort them, to reorder their inner being. These two works of grace are denied by many who say that when they were converted, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were not. The Holy Spirit was in them. The Holy Spirit was there dealing with their hearts. But until this final work of cleansing is done, Pentecost is necessary for every Christian. And we have lost our saltiness in the church today because we have denied both the first and the second works of grace. And we have corrupted the word grace to mean a covering. I hear Christians, beautiful Christians, who will say, my sins are all covered. No, they're not. Your sins are not covered in the new covenant. In the new covenant, your sins are removed. They're removed. They're totally gone. There's no longer a memory of them. And then the second work of grace, a total inner cleansing, a reshaping of the man in the new form of Christ Jesus and operating in the power to witness and to minister in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, there's another passage. Galatians, the fourth chapter. I'm sorry, Galatians, the fifth chapter. Read carefully verses 13 through 25, but I want to call special attention to verse 24. In fact, the one who are of Christ, crucified the flesh with the passions and the lusts. If we live in the Spirit, we should also walk in the Spirit. This is why 
I'm so strong in my emphasis that we must be baptized in the fullness of the Spirit. Now, there's another passage I want to look at with you. In the book of Jude, and I I urge you, if you haven't recently just read the book of Jude, one chapter, but a powerful book. I'll begin reading in verse 5. Now, I want you to recall you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward he brought to ruin the ones not having believed. If you refuse to believe and act on the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ, and you claim that your sins are only covered, and that you continue to sin until the day you die, You will, like the children of Israel, because you are refusing to believe the good news of the blood's power to cleanse totally, to remove your sin and to cleanse you totally. You are like the children of Israel who refuse to enter into the promised land. Read carefully Hebrews, the fourth chapter. I want you to see these people began the journey with the Lord God of heaven, but they could not finish it. The church today has begun the journey with Jesus, but we have not as a church in America finished that journey because we have been taught lies, disabling lies that have prevented the healing power of the blood of Jesus from doing that second work of grace described over here in 1 John 1, nine, and in Romans, the sixth chapter. Yes, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But it's not enough to have your sins forgiven, removed, you must also be totally cleansed. And that is not a work of introspection. Hear me clearly. It's a work of faith and calling that which is not as it were, allowing the Holy Spirit full reign. The children of Israel died in the wilderness because they would not enter the promised land, because they would not believe that it was possible. Verse 6, And so the angels, not having kept their own domain, but having abandoned their own positions, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for judgment with respect to the great day. So angels who were once in God's presence, were cast out because they walked in their sin. You have your sins forgiven. You claim you are saved. 
but you refuse the cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, you will be like these angels cast into a prison for the final day of judgment. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities surrounding them having indulged in immorality, having gone after different flesh, in a similar manner to those angels, they lie before all as an example, undergoing the penalty of eternal fire. So he's saying the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they chose to walk in their sin. And God used the fire to consume them. So here we have three examples. We have the children of Israel who refused to believe that God would do what he said he would do. The angels who had been in God's presence chose to walk in their sin. Sodom and Gomorrah who had the testimony of Lot insisted on continuing in the wickedness of their lives. And they were destroyed. Jesus said over here, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt may become tasteless, by what will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. If you refuse the cleansing work of God, after you have said, yes, I will trust Jesus to wipe away my sins, I will trust Jesus to give me the new birth, and then you refuse to believe Jesus that he will cleanse you entirely, that he will sanctify you through and through. You refuse the second work of grace. Jesus is saying your outcome is going to be the same as the children of Israel, the same as the angels who left their high place and came down, the same as Sodom and Gomorrah. My brother, my sister, This is so serious. You see, the law will not bring you righteousness. Only Jesus can bring you righteousness. Innocence. Only he can forgive your past sins and remove them from you and make you into a new creature, one that never before existed. One of a kind, you, before a holy God. If you then reject the flow of the Beatitudes and you refuse to accept a pure heart, You refuse to be merciful. You refuse to be a peacemaker. Instead, you're a troublemaker. 
filled with arrogance and pride. Then you too will be cast out. Some of you have insisted on owning yourselves. And you're going to have to decide, as I said last week, and at the beginning of this week, if you have stolen yourself from God, you must return yourself to him. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You are to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. To be the temple of the Holy Spirit, you must have your sins removed and you must be entirely cleansed. The Holy Spirit will not move into a dirty house. He will cleanse it by the blood of Jesus as a free gift. This is not a work of of the law. It is a work of absolutely trusting in Jesus Christ, being consumed by Jesus, being filled with the glory and wonder of Jesus. He did not come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it, and he wants to fulfill that law in your life. He wants to make you truly righteous and holy. And we must be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees who kept an outward law, but inside were full of dead men's bones. Some of you today call yourselves Christians, but inside you're full of fornication, pornography, You're full of bitterness and anger and rage. You're full of all kinds of uncleanness. And yet you say, I love Jesus and I've accepted him as my Savior and I'm on my way to heaven. No, you're not. Both works of grace must be accomplished in your life. You must have your sins forgiven and you must be entirely cleansed and made clean by the Holy Spirit. It is necessary for every Christian to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That is an absolute certainty from the Word of God. And of course, we throw up our hands and we say, how can I be baptized in the Spirit? I can't do it to myself. No, you can't has to be done by God, a supernatural work of grace. May I tell you this? You cannot even be saved and have your sins forgiven by a work of the law. To be saved in Jesus is a supernatural work of grace. It is out of his mercy. It is out of his abounding kindness and love for you. And you receive salvation in the same way you receive the cleansing of every conceivable sin, you receive that by faith in the blood of Jesus. It is not a work of the law. It's a work of grace. 
but we're out of time for today. I pray this has been helpful to you. If it has, I'd love to hear from you. Please, if you're on YouTube, go on our chat and let me know that you're there and that you've understood what I've said to you. Add any comment you'd like. We have about two minutes left, so you can go on that chat and do that very quickly. I also ask, would you please subscribe to this channel? It will help Google to spread the word further. The more subscriptions we have, the further the word goes, the wider the dissemination. Now, I also need to hear from you. Ellen, I heard from you this morning. Thank you. That was such a wonderful gift to hear from you. You can go on our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can give online. You can add comments online. Or you can write to me. And the address is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, it's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. This is a faith ministry. I can't proclaim this word of God by myself. It costs a lot of money to be on the air. I have to buy that time. I do it by faith that God will move in your hearts to help and stand with me for the work of the gospel. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I love you. We'll talk soon.